0: they've sinned and rejected God. They've taken their own wisdom and removed themselves from the wisdom of scripture and the law of God. And because of that, they've reversed good and evil and thought about what's right in their own eyes, really what benefits me rather than what is actually objectively good. And because of that, God is going to Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away, as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety, from beginning to end, and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So chapter 5 of the book of Isaiah, we are following last week where we covered the first four chapters really discussing a whole lot about God's coming judgment upon the nation of Israel, really the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, because of their disobedience and idolatry. And what happens when Isaiah looks forward into the future and he's proclaiming this coming judgment, he really sees a judgment that's coming upon the Jewish people and, their, and this nation. Uh, But he really can't discern the difference between what's coming very quickly and what's coming far off in the future. The best description of this I've ever heard uh, was by Pastor Skip Heitzig. He put it this way. When the, the Old Testament prophets are predicting the future and they're writing what God is showing them in the future, it's like when we are approaching a mountain range from miles away. Off in the distance, you see the peaks. And it looks like just one long range of mountains, like one skyline. But as you approach the mountain range, what you find out is that the mountains themselves are actually miles apart. And so as the timing gets closer to the prophecies being fulfilled, you actually see that there's a time difference between some of the things that Isaiah is writing about. So some of what Isaiah is writing about is going to happen very soon. And some of what Isaiah is writing about, we still are looking forward to on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection. And we're going to see a little bit more of what is going to happen quickly in Isaiah chapter 5. So, after this, you know, these these messages and, and prophecies that Isaiah has given to King Uzziah, there's this song. That God gives him in chapter 5. It starts like this. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. This is clearly talking about how God's love for Israel and the nation of Israel is connected to the land that he has given them. The promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. They came to a place that had already been worked and buildings were built and God prepared this land for them and he gave this choice land to his chosen people. And he's talking about his love for them and his his care for them and what he has given them. And he calls it his vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with its choicest vine. He built a tower in its mists and he also made a wine press in it so he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. And so God is using this poetic message to point out God has given them this choice land he's built them a place of worship in the midst of it a place of sacrifice a place to connect with their creator and that reminds me of the wine press, the blood that flows from the sacrifices that should be sweet because it brings connection to God. But what he says is that God expected this to bring forth good grapes, something sweet and that smells good and tastes good. Instead, it brought forth wild grapes, bitterness, and a foul odor. And previously in the book of Isaiah, God had pointed out that he is done. He can't stand their sacrifices anymore because it's just a task. It's a way they think they can appease God and then go on and continue sinning and ignoring him. And so what he meant for good has turned to something foul. And this is part of the reason that the judgment is coming. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And God's point there is really, look at everything I've done for you. I helped you escape from Egypt. I gave you bread and meat on the way and water. I provided for you the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. This wonderful place. I gave you the directions to build the tabernacle and then you built the temple. And you have this place where you can come and see me and have communion with me because of the sacrifices that I told you to do so that we could stay connected to one another. What else could God have done for these people? He has given them everything. He's protected them at times of war. He protected the southern kingdom of Judah from the most powerful kingdom in the Assyrians. The Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, but Judah was protected from them because of the temple. And God is saying, what more could I have possibly done? And even after all of this, the grapes my vineyard has turned sour because you continue to reject me and not follow me. So now, please, Let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. This is what he's going to do with the kingdom of Judah. I will take away its hedge. It shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. So God is saying, I'm taking away your protection. I'm going to stop taking care of you. The walls are going to be broken down. The hedge of protection is gone. Your walls of protection are gone. No one's going to take care of it. You are going to be uprooted and taken out of the land and the land itself will become barren and useless. So God is saying, you're going to be brought out of the land. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And here in verse 7, you get, the meaning of the song. God is, in case any of those listening to Isaiah don't understand what he's saying, he explains it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And God says, yes, Israel, this nation, this land, is the vineyard. The people within it were the plants. I'm uprooting the plants because what I was looking for, they gave me the opposite. I was looking for a just people. Instead, they became oppressive. I was looking for a righteous people. Instead, all I get are cries of help. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. And so he's really pointing out to them not only is the land going to be destroyed and there's not going to be rain and your walls are going to be broken down, I'm taking you, I am uprooting you and moving you out of the land. The houses will be empty. You are going into the captivity. And he is telling them about the coming captivity from the Babylonians. He's telling them that he's going to raise up an army that's going to take them out of the land. Verse 10, For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. And now he's giving out a specific call to the people of Israel, those who are the party crowd. You're getting drunk in the morning. You're drinking all day. You're staying up late at night. Woe to you. Stop and think about how unrighteous and wicked the city has come, has become. The harp and the strings and the tambourines and flute and wine are in their feasts, right? They're partying, they're making loud noises, they're joyful in their sin and parading it around. So verse 13, therefore, my people have gone into captivity. Now this is interesting because this is a prophecy about the future, but God is so sure about what he is going to do, he states it as past tense. When God does that in prophecy, pay attention, because it means... There's no changing God's mind. There's no repenting out of it. This is going down. So therefore, my people have gone into captivity. He has made up his mind. It's happening. Because they have no knowledge, their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People, people shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in his righteousness. So God has decided they're going to be brought into captivity. He's going to humble their pride. Because they think they've got it so good, they think they've got everything figured out, but they don't. And so God's going to humble them and carry them off into captivity using the Babylonians. And through that, God's righteousness will be exalted. He's really expecting that through this, eventually, they will come back to worship him and see God for who he is and remember his promises. So then the lamb shall feed in their pasture and in waste places of the fat once strangers uh, shall eat. And he says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and and sin as if with a cart rope that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. But what is happening is through Isaiah, God is speaking directly to those who are mocking him. Who are saying, we don't believe you, Isaiah. We don't believe this is coming. He says, woe to you that dare God, that challenge God and say, okay, let him do this quickly. Let him hasten his work in verse verse 19. That we can see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come so that we can know it. They're basically saying, we don't believe you. We dare God to do this so that we can see it with our own eyes. Because we don't believe you, Isaiah, because of the pride in their hearts. They've exalted themselves above God and they don't believe that judgment will come for them. But it will. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's pretty plain language. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 3 when Paul is writing about the final days and the attitude of people in the last days when he says that people will call evil good and good evil. In verse 21 it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And so in that very same vein, in this last Warning to these people Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who see themselves as wise in their own eyes and in their own sight. This reminds me of the common phrases of the day that we live in, where people think of themselves as the subjective kings of the universe and they think themselves right and wise all the time because they see the world only through their emotional state and lens. And they say, this is my truth, and they don't care about the objective truth. It doesn't matter if what I see or I feel contradicts objectivity or reality. I see things my own way. It reminds me of the book of Judges, where it says that there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They sought pleasure for themselves. Everything that they did was consumed with what felt good for them without the concern of the reality around them. Those who see themselves as wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, not considering the truth and the reality that is objective outside of them. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours stubble and flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. How did they become wise in their own sight? How did they become prudent in their own eyes? How did they start calling evil good and good evil? There's the answer in verse 24. They rejected the law of God. They rejected the word of God. The scripture was not their authority anymore. They became their own authority. And when they gave themselves over to the thoughts of the flesh, they've reversed good and evil in their times. Therefore, this is the consequence of that type of behavior. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He shall stretch out his hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled, their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the ends of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. And so, God here is saying through Isaiah that he's going to lift up a banner to the surrounding nations. God is going to send a message to the nations or make the kingdom of Judah something visible to the surrounding nations or to many nations that they want to conquer this place. He is going to send foreign nations after the kingdom of Judah and after the land in Israel because of their behavior. Now, what does this sound like to me? It sounds like the prophecies that mix. You take this and connect it to Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11. What you have are multiple nations or empires that consumed the Kingdom of Judah. First Babylon. in Daniel chapter 2, you see that statue of many metals where the head is, uh, head is made of gold, but the shoulders and torso is made of silver. and well I'm sorry, the shoulders and chest, the arms and chest are made of silver, the torso is made of bronze and the legs are made of iron, and then the feet are made of iron and mixed with clay with the ten toes. And it is that those nations, those dominating empires, as explained by Daniel, that will consume the, nations of is, the nation of Israel and be world-dominating nations. Well, Babylon comes and conquers the nation of Judah and kicks them out of the land and throws them into captivity for 70 years. They're able to go back to the land, but they're not a sovereign nation. They're still part of the Persian Empire that follows Babylon. And they're part of the Greek Empire that follows the Persian Empire. And they're part of the Roman Empire that follows the Greek Empire when Jesus shows up on the scene the first time. And then you have that last piece of the feet that are made of iron when toes mixed with iron and clay. That represents the final dominating empire that the Antichrist will rule at the end of days. So Isaiah is looking at all of that and he puts it in this one little phrase. God will lift up a banner of nations from afar and whistle to them to the ends of the earth, and surely they will come with speed swiftly. They will come to overtake Judah. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will their belt on their loins be loosened, nor the strap of their sandals be broken. Whose arrows are sharp and their bows bent, their horses' hooves will seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. And here's where it gets interesting in verse 29. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. So now talking about the nation specifically that carries away the nation of Israel, says that they will be roaring like a lion. Interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who is the king during the Babylonian captivity and conquers Jerusalem, is often represented as a lion, and in Babylonian architecture and art, lions were often represented. And also sounds a whole lot like the beast in Daniel 7 that represents the Babylonian empire. So that word really seems to connect to Babylon is coming to carry you out of Jerusalem. In that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. So that's chapter 5. And it's really consumed with this idea that they've sinned and rejected God. They've taken their own wisdom and removed themselves from the wisdom of Scripture and the law of God. And because of that, they've reversed good and evil and thought about what's right in their own eyes, really what benefits me rather than what is actually objectively good and because of that God is going to put them into the captivity take them out of the land and he's going to use Babylon to do it that's what we discover in chapter five now chapter six is one of my favorites in the book of Isaiah and it starts out kind of sad (laughs) in the year that King Uzziah died that's how it starts but King Uzziah was actually a really good king. In the latter years of his reign, though, his years were extended, but he had leprosy and he ended up reigning as co-regent with his son. Uh, but ultimately, he ended up dying towards the early years of Isaiah's work as a prophet. But Uzziah reigned for 52 years in Israel. But in that year that Uzziah died, imagine Isaiah's thoughts. Isaiah is this prophet speaking to the nation. And as he starts out his ministry, King Uzziah, who's a good king and has brought in a lot of good reform for the nation of Israel, that must feel good as a prophet speaking to this nation trying to keep them on the right path. But now a good king has passed away. And I just imagine Isaiah's emotions at that as a prophet, knowing the ultimate judgment that's coming when a good king is no longer on the throne. But the next phrase is a really good reminder. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a good reminder that the one who's ultimately in control is not at the head of the government, but in heaven. Above it stood seraphim, Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this might sound familiar to you, because what has happened is in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has a vision and he's taken into the throne room of heaven. This should sound like A long time ago, when we started this Bible study and we went through the book of Revelation, because in chapter 4, John is ushered into heaven and he sees four angels surrounding the throne of God in the throne room of heaven. And he says, The four living creatures, this is Revelation 4 8, each having six wings were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so we see this. Connection where the throne room of heaven still looks the same thousands of years later between Isaiah and the book of Revelation. It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, this is really interesting because if you remember what we did when we went through Revelation 4 and 5, as we pointed out some of the interesting depictions that John painted as he was in the throne room of heaven. Because there were some things that reminded us a whole lot of the tabernacle and the temple. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you see that there's this sea of glass that looks an awful lot like the bronze laver, the place where the priests would wash their hands before they did any of the sacrifice work so that they would be clean when they touched anything or after they did the sacrifice work so that their hands would be clean before they went into the holy place. But in heaven, it's sea of glass, because you don't need to wash, because you're already pure. And there is this smoke that's filling this place. And in Revelation, you see all of these bowls of incense. Well, in the temple or in the tabernacle, in the holy place, there was an altar of incense that would always be have smoke rising up out of it. And it represented The prayers of the people going up to God. And he's standing in the throne room of God and it's filled with smoke as though the prayers of the people are in the throne room, in the holy place in heaven. And that's what we're looking at here. And Isaiah says this, I said, Woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's instinct is immediately to be humbled when he recognizes where he is. He says, I can't be here. I am not clean enough to be here. Now, this should be both encouraging and kind of scary. Encouraging in that, the prophet isaiah one of the most famous prophets in all of scripture a man who was picked hand picked by god to predict future and predict his, and speak on his behalf to the nation of israel and wrote a scripture that's useful still to this day of, of god's word that guy was not clean enough to be in god's presence but god had him in the throne room of heaven. That should be encouraging for you, because I'm not that good either, right? So God brings him into the holy into the holy place in into heaven, and this is what he does. It says then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken. With the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. This is why it's important to understand what goes on at the temple and the tabernacle. Isaiah is in the throne room of heaven, but what he's seeing, he recognizes because it looks a lot like the temple or the tabernacle. And an angel grabs a coal from the altar and touches his lips. Now, which altar? Not sure if it's the altar of incense or the brazen altar. Doesn't matter, because here's how it works. When you would bring an animal in for sacrifice to cleanse you of your sin into the tabernacle or the temple, first, that animal would be inspected to make sure it's clean and pure. If that animal was acceptable for sacrifice, it would be let through the curtain. And then you could begin to take it apart and burn it and do the sacrifice for the animal. Then the pieces of the animal that got burned, after it was butchered and taken apart correctly, those pieces were placed on the brazen altar, on the bronze altar. And the blood from the pieces would drip onto the coals of the bronze altar. Those coals would be then taken from the bronze altar to inside the holy place because they've been cleansed by the blood into into the holy place. And then those coals were used to light the incense on the altar of incense. And that is what cleansed the lips of Isaiah. That's what allowed him to be in the presence of God. Why is that important? Because the sacrifices are representative of Jesus. Blood from the sacrifice is what made the coal able to clean Isaiah's lips. And so they are cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And that coal that lights the incense, the prayers are able to go up to heaven because they're clean by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is what makes Isaiah's lips clean. It's not that it's a hot, burning coal. It's what drips on the coal that comes from the altar. So that is an image that I really want you to understand of what is going on in here and what picture this paints for us to understand. Sacrifice and what Jesus did for us. Jesus allows us to be in the presence of God because the blood of the Lamb cleans us just like the coal cleansed Isaiah's lips. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So God is looking. He's brought Isaiah up to the throne room of heaven. And God is looking for someone to be his messenger. And Isaiah responds correctly. Here I am. Send me. That should be the attitude of everyone who's cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. If you have been, Jesus gave you a message. He told us all to go and make disciples of all nations. And so he says, here I am. Send me. And then God said, go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? So it's interesting. He says, here I am. Lord, send me. And God's response to Isaiah is, keep preaching the message, but they won't hear. Keep saying it, keep telling them, but they won't see. if they did, they would turn their hearts to me, but they won't. That should sound familiar. If it doesn't, I'll show you where it should sound familiar. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, John says this. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and harden their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, all of the questions should have been gone. This is clearly the Messiah. But people were still questioning and wondering. And this is what John puts in his gospel to explain the doubt that the people of Israel had after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. It's just like Isaiah said. What Isaiah prophesied was fulfilled, that the hearts of the people would be dull, their ears would be heavy, that they'd shut their eyes. No matter what they saw, they wouldn't see. No matter what they heard, they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't understand because if they did, they would return to God and be healed. And so John quotes this in his gospel. So Isaiah says, Lord, how long? And God answered, until the cities are laid waste without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree, as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be in its stump. And so God's answer is, the people will be carried away out of the land. The people will be judged and removed from Israel. But there will be a small remnant that believe. And those people will become the ones who lead the return. And they will be the ones that he calls his stump. And they will help bring back the worship of God in Israel. And that happened. And they returned when they were still under Persian rule, but they returned to the land and they rebuilt the temple. And they no longer worshiped idols, they worshiped God. And then Jesus came from that group that rebuilt the temple and built as they endured not only the Persians, but then the Greeks and the Romans, and they dealt with this oppression. And they were looking for their Messiah to be a political leader, to overtake the Roman Empire and end the political oppression. Because just like Isaiah didn't understand that what he was prophesying in the distant future was not one mountain range or one mountain, but was really a lot of mountains that were far apart. And so part of what was going on is Jesus had to do something first. He had to heal people of their sin so that they could be reconciled with God. Because if people aren't reconciled with God, and God sets up his kingdom on earth, no people can be in it because no one's been reconciled with him. So he had to solve the sin problem first. The political problem and the physical problems of this world will be solved in the second coming, which is yet to come. And both those things are stated here in the book of Isaiah. He just doesn't Understand the gap that exists between the two comings. And thankfully, with the book of Revelation and the New Testament, we have extra detail to help us understand those two things. But man, these two chapters, very specific and very accurate with the idea of the Babylonian captivity and what is coming, but also very clear in the picture of what cleanses people and what the Messiah will look like with that picture of the coal and the tabernacle. And also, where the Messiah will come from out of that stump that returns from the captivity. And we'll see more of that as we go through the book of Isaiah. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this prophecy. Um, thank you for what has been fulfilled and what is yet to be fulfilled. How accurate a time to be looking at that as the season of Advent, where we. Look forward to Christmas and remembering the birth of the Messiah who saved us and reconciled us to you through his sacrifice. But we also look forward to his return where the physical problems of this world will be dealt with. God, thank you for the book of Isaiah. Help us to take the lessons to heart and to draw closer to you because of them. In Jesus' name, amen.